today on the Barbara Rainey Podcast. For an entire day, November the 10th, 1620, a discussion went on in the main cabin of the Mayflower. Mr. Bradford, sir, this land we have come upon, ship's master Jones saith not to be in the Virginias at all. True enough, Mr. Trevor. We knoweth not with certainty what land God hath set us upon, though we believe it to be a good land, called Plymouth by the Cape of Cod. Best for us if it is a fat land, for our stores are well nigh eaten through already. Then if our stores be depleted, we must do the work are better served in the Virginias. We know but little of this land, nor the people thereof, nor whether our labors will be blessed here. We're going to listen to the book written by Barbara Rainey, Thanksgiving, A Time to Remember. Welcome to the Barbara Rainey Podcast from Ever Thine Home, where we want to help you experience God in your life and home. Thanks for listening. Barbara's always been passionate about helping families celebrate holidays in ways that are spiritually meaningful. And she says one of the most neglected holidays in the U.S. is Thanksgiving. I guess you could say she's not a fan of Christmas decorations hitting the stores months ahead of time. In fact, here's Barbara along with her husband, Dennis. Tell them what your soapbox is about Christmas decorations showing up around Halloween. Yeah, they show up two months ahead, usually, and sometimes more. And you're pleased about that. It really bothers me. (laughs) (laughs) I just feel like they're rushing it. And we don't get a chance to live in the present because we're always bombarded with what's coming two months from now and three months from now. And I just think it instills a sense of panic that I've got to get on it. And we really have lots of time. And I think it's more important to enjoy the present. I'm sure that sense of urgency isn't entirely accidental. Dennis says, by overlooking Thanksgiving, our culture is neglecting some important opportunities. Barbara and I really believe that this is the one holiday throughout the year that is uniquely a family holiday that I think galvanizes family relationships as few times during the year can. I don't know how you and your family celebrate Thanksgiving, but in Dennis's growing up years, it involves the traditional ingredients— Turkey, stuffin', pumpkin pie, lots of food. But there there wasn't the historical or the spiritual emphasis that uh, really Barbara has uh, helped our family enjoy. After we've done this tradition over and over and over again, it finally begins to sink in what a rich holiday in terms of our faith, in terms of the historical perspective of our nation— in terms of the courage and the sacrifice of the pilgrims and uh, what they did to to form a new nation and how we can begin to tap into that and not merely relive the past, but learn from the lessons of the past. And then, most importantly, I think, do what the holiday is all about, which is give thanks as a family. The Rainey family's Thanksgiving traditions include rehearsing some of the events surrounding the early European settlers in New England and following their example in giving thanks to God, even in some dire situations. She explains how it came about. First of all, Dennis uh, was speaking at a conference every year over the Thanksgiving holiday. And part of that conference was a banquet that we all attended, he and I and the children, 
but it was with about 300 other people or 400 other people. So it wasn't very private. And I just felt like we needed to do something with our children that was just us over the Thanksgiving holiday because we had spent all these years with other people. So that was the first motivation was to establish some kind of a tradition that was just for our family on Thanksgiving Day. The second reason that I got real motivated to do this is because as my children started going to school, I realized that they weren't learning much about the real reasons behind the holiday. Their information was was sketchy. They learned some some correct names. They learned about Squanto and the Indians, and they learned about, I mean, they had some of the facts straight, but they weren't getting the real spiritual side of the story. And I knew there was a whole lot more to the story than what they were learning, and I wanted them to know the real story. So I um, I found a book that I marked just certain portions of, and I began to read that to our kids periodically. And to, I also began to um, to have our children record what they were thankful for every Thanksgiving day. And that sort of was my way of pulling our family together on Thanksgiving Day, giving us something that we could do together that would focus on the spiritual side of the holiday. I think there's an additional benefit to our family that uh, Barbara's minimizing. She was a, a, a history major in college. And so uh, she's enjoyed good stories about history and uh, the stories that set the context for our nation. And she had many of these stories, and as she began to read them to our family, frankly, for me, in, in high school and college, history was kind of boring. But as Barbara began to read the stories and kind of became like a history professor to our family, I literally began to see a holiday born again, as it were, in my own heart and mind as I listened to the story of the real Thanksgiving, the real pilgrims, the real holiday and how it came about. And there's something about wrapping the Christian faith with some humanity that enables us to get back into that holiday and not just have a tradition, but realize, you know what? Our country really does have a spiritual heritage that we need to be celebrating on this day. Eventually, Barbara wrote her own book, something the whole family would appreciate and benefit from. So on this episode in the next, we're going to take some time to listen to that book by Barbara Rainey. Its title is Thanksgiving, A Time to Remember. This is one of those moments where you can gather your kids around to listen. And maybe listening to this could become something you plan to do as part of your family's Thanksgiving this year, as well as for the years to come. Here's part one of the audiobook, Thanksgiving, A Time to Remember. The Mayflower, a small wooden ship with billowing sails, was the vessel God used to bring a group of Christian believers to an unseen land far over the Atlantic. These Christian men and women, called pilgrims, believed that God was leading them to establish a new community where they could worship freely. Americans celebrate Thanksgiving every year. Because of the profound faith and uncommon courage of these English men and women, they had no idea how God was going to use them to begin a new nation. They only knew God wanted them to go. So in September of 1620, after enduring many delays and difficulties, these pilgrims finally said their last goodbyes, boarded the Mayflower, and set sail for the new world.
we gather together to ask the Lord's blessings. So begins a wonderful hymn often sung at Thanksgiving. Although most Americans' lives don't center around a literal harvest anymore, many of us do gather together every year on the fourth Thursday of November to enjoy family and to partake of the abundance of this land. Hello, I'm Barbara Rainey. Increasingly, I've heard people say that Thanksgiving is their favorite holiday. Is that surprising? Though it's a holiday sandwiched between the increasingly popular Halloween and the overwhelmingly merchandised Christmas, Thanksgiving remains the holiday of coming home. It's a holiday of rest, in stark contrast to the frenzy of obligations and spending that threaten to destroy the essence of Christmas. Our national observance of Thanksgiving is unique— It is both distinctly Christian and exclusively American, a holiday for celebrating faith, family, and freedom. Having majored in history in college, I've been concerned for years that we, the people, don't know and understand what Abraham Lincoln referred to when he began his famous Gettysburg Address with this statement. Four score and seven years ago, our fathers brought forth upon this continent a new nation conceived in liberty. I was determined that my children would hear the stories of the courageous men and women and children who lived honorably and through faith in God made enormous sacrifices to secure freedom for us all. I wanted them to understand God's sovereignty at work in the lives of our forefathers and His providential direction of their circumstances. For the Rainey family, Thanksgiving was not going to be just eating, hours of TV, football, naps, and leftover turkey sandwiches— followed by a stress-filled Friday of frantic Christmas shopping at the mall. With my husband's help, I initiated some new traditions into our Thanksgiving Day. The two more important ones are the reading of stories about the pilgrim's journey of faith from England to the shores of Cape Cod and the recording and sharing of our family's personal blessings. As believers in Christ, we have so much to be thankful for, and as Americans, God has abundantly blessed our nation. This book contains a remarkable story of faith. Our forefathers were ordinary men and women, but they possessed an extraordinary faith. Their courage will inspire us, their perseverance will challenge us, and their faith will be an example to us. May we get to know them and follow in their footsteps. The roots of our Thanksgiving heritage are entwined with the history of England growing deep into the rolling green hills of the English countryside. Nestled in those hills was a little village named Austerfield. And in that village in 1590, a child named William Bradford was born. William's childhood was unhappy. While still a boy, he was orphaned. His father dying when he was a baby, his mother when he was seven. He was placed in the home of two uncles in Austerfield. Not long after his mother died, William suffered a prolonged illness that left him unable to work in the fields. As a result, he was allowed to be educated, and he learned to read the Bible on his own. As a teenager, he walked every week to a nearby village called Scrooby to learn more of the Christian faith and to worship God secretly in a personal and pure way with a small group of like-minded believers. Increasingly, William grew dissatisfied with the state-sponsored religion of the Church of England. Its worship seemed stale and cold, 
compared to what he experienced with the believers in Scrooby. Like many people of his time, William concluded that there wasn't much hope for spiritual life to return to the state church. Those who felt this way were called separatists, individuals willing to risk the consequences of separating from the official church. There was another group of people in the English church who became known as Puritans. The Puritans also disagreed with the state church, but they wanted to stay in the church and try to purify or change it from within. The authorities in the Church of England felt threatened by both of these growing movements toward religious freedom. They especially feared the separatists who were forming their own churches. So, the governing house of bishops sent spies and informers to many of these secret congregations, including the one at Scrooby. Many separatist church leaders and some Puritans were fined, pressured, persecuted, arrested or thrown in prison. Some were even executed with the approval of Queen Elizabeth I and later King James I in hopes of squelching these rebellious believers. After years of mounting stress caused by this harassment and persecution, many families in the separatist church, including William, who was not yet 20, left their English homeland for exile in Leiden, Holland. The separatists enjoyed their new religious freedom in Holland but life again became increasingly difficult for them. In England, many of them had been landowners. In Holland, because they were foreigners, the men had to take whatever work was available. William Bradford became a weaver, usually working 12 to 14 hour days, six days a week. The separatists did not complain, however, because the ability to worship God as they saw fit was supremely important. They lived out the message of Hebrews 12:28. Since we receive a kingdom which cannot be shaken, let us show gratitude by which we may offer to God an acceptable service with reverence and awe. After nearly a decade on Dutch soil, a number of members of the Church of Leiden began to explore the possibility of moving across the sea to the new world of America. Many of them once again wanted to own their own land. And because England was such a powerful country in Europe, and in the world. They feared that the English might pressure the Dutch government to clamp down on the rebel church. The separatists also worried about the effect of a rather morally loose Dutch society on their own young people. But the challenges of life in the wild territory across the Atlantic were sobering. Other groups had settled in America with disastrous results. The Jamestown colony in Virginia was a recent example. Of 1,200 settlers who had arrived in Jamestown in 1619. Only 200 were still alive in 1620. The congregation in Leiden debated the decision. Staying in Holland meant greater safety in a civilized land. Settling in America probably guaranteed religious liberty, but the physical risks were enormous, and the financial cost of a voyage would be high. America was an uncivilized frontier with a vicious climate in some regions. Would the farming techniques they knew work in this new land? What strange diseases might await them there? Perhaps worst of all, the land was filled with savages about whom frightening stories were told by those who had sailed back from the new world. In spite of this sobering outlook, the Leiden church chose to believe that God would grant them success 
if they sent a settling party to America. William Bradford later wrote, They had a great hope and inward zeal of laying a good foundation for the propagating and advancing of the kingdom of Christ in those remote parts of the world. Yea, though they should be but even as stepping stones unto others. If God blessed their efforts, then many others, including their pastor, John Robinson, probably would join them on the other side of the Atlantic Ocean. William Bradford was one of those who decided to embark on the adventure. During the exile in Holland, he had met and married a young woman named Dorothy May. The couple later had a son named John, who was particularly precious to his mother. Because of the anticipated hardships awaiting the separatists in America, as well as the rigors of the ocean voyage, some decided to leave family members behind in Holland. They hoped that in the near future all could be reunited in the new land. This was true of the Bradfords, who sadly chose to leave five-year-old John in the care of others. <laughs> Dorothy May, we must trust in the sovereign to give us hope and rest. Tis best for he and thee. But the boy is precious to my soul, William. Can the beckoning of a new land cause us to forego our steadfast duty to our own son? God's will be done. God's will be done. After all the discussion and agonizing decision-making, and before departing from Holland, the church spent a day in fasting and prayer for the journey ahead. Then they gathered for a special service and to hear a sermon from their pastor. He chose as his scripture text, Ezra 8.21. Then I proclaimed a fast, that we might humble ourselves before our God to seek from him a safe journey for us, our little ones, and all our possessions. After Pastor Robinson had encouraged and prayed for the group of pilgrims, the entire separatist congregation had a feast and sang psalms. Edward Winslow, one of the church leaders who would be making the voyage, wrote of the evening, We refreshed ourselves after our tears with the singing of psalms, and indeed, it was the sweetest melody that ever mine ears have heard. The Pilgrim Band of approximately 46 people first had to sail from Holland to England on a ship named the Speedwell. After sad farewells on July the 22nd, 1620, the small ship headed across the English Channel to the seaport of Southampton. The Speedwell docked at a slip next to a ship painted brown and gold. It was the Mayflower. Already on board this ship were Captain Jones, his crew, and 60 to 70 volunteers who had been recruited in England to give the new colony a larger population. Some of these volunteers desired religious freedom, but most were more interested in finding success and fortune in the new land. Also on board 
were some servants hired to help the pilgrims from Leiden. One of the hired helpers was Captain Miles Standish, an ex-soldier who would play an important role in the months ahead. Both the smaller Speedwell and the Mayflower sailed from Southampton on August the 5th, 1620. This was late in the summer to launch such a voyage. Even with a normal ocean crossing and no bad weather, the ships would not arrive until October, quite late to start building a settlement from the ground up. The first days of the journey hinted at difficulties to come. The winds were unfavorable, and the ships could not make it out of the English Channel. The passengers, bounced to and fro by the rough waters, became seasick. Then the speedwell began to leak. Seawater seeped through the hull and filled the belly of the ship. Both ships were forced to return to land, this time to the port of Dartmouth. After a week, repairs were completed on the speedwell, and both ships sailed west. After traveling about 300 miles into the Atlantic, the speedwell again developed leaks. With great disappointment to everyone, the ships returned a second time to yet another port, Plymouth. More days of work and testing by shipbuilders passed before the speedwell was labeled unseaworthy. The smaller speedwell had been purchased by the colony to remain in America and be a means of transporting supplies, goods for sale, and passengers back and forth to Europe. But because the ship couldn't be repaired, the pilgrim leaders were forced to sell it. This necessitated another decision. Since there wasn't enough room in the Mayflower for the combined passengers of both ships, 20 volunteers would have to stay behind. Apparently, the choice was not too difficult, since by now they had spent much of the last month on board ship and had experienced considerable seasickness. The volunteers came forward. William Bradford commented, And thus, like Gideon's army, this small number was divided, as if the Lord, by this work of his providence, thought these few too many for the great work he had to do. When the Mayflower finally left England on the 6th of September, crowded on board were 102 passengers, including 33 children. Most of the pilgrims on the ship were in their 20s and 30s. Surprisingly, at least 15 passengers were over 40, including William and Mary Brewster, who were both in their 50s. Because of the delays, the passengers and crew had already used much of the food and drink set aside for the voyage. This meant supplies intended for use after landing in America would be needed for the sea journey. The food was terrible. Brine-soaked beef, pork and fish, and stale hard biscuits, which often were full of insects. The rats living on board helped themselves to the same food supplies. The rooms for passengers were crowded and mainly below deck. Conditions were miserable. Cramped quarters, seasick people vomiting into pails, if they were able to find one in time. No sanitary toilets. The hatches were sealed off because of constant storms, and so the passengers were unable to get fresh air. A foul mixture of odors grew in such an environment. Another problem was the attitude of the seamen sailing the Mayflower. These men did not like landlubbers, particularly religious ones, calling the pilgrims psalm-singing puke stockings, and worse. The sailors ridiculed their passengers for taking time each morning to recite or sing psalms and pray. One young sailor was especially nasty, cursing the ones who were sick and telling them he looked forward to throwing them overboard if they died on the voyage. About two weeks out to sea, this same sailor 
unexpectedly developed a raging fever. Within just one day, he died of an unknown sickness, raving and cursing as he breathed his last. His shrouded body was buried at sea. This sobered the other seamen, a superstitious group even in normal circumstances. They wondered if their fellow crewman had died because of his treatment of the humble and God-fearing pilgrims. Not wanting to risk a similar fate, the more superstitious sailors no longer ridiculed their passengers. The Mayflower was nearly halfway across the Atlantic when it met a ferocious storm. The wind wailed at 50 miles per hour and waves towered 50 feet or higher. The waves' vicious pounding opened cracks in the ship's wooden hull. Icy cold seawater soaked the sailors and leaked into the passenger quarters below deck. The ship rolled and tossed from side to side with the terrified pilgrims hanging on to anything solid, crying out to God to deliver them. The storm raged for days and became so intense that even the blasphemous sailors prayed. The pilgrims continued to pray and sing songs, their voices barely heard above the thundering waves and howling wind. Without warning, one of the huge crossbeams supporting the main deck suddenly cracked due to the constant stress of the high winds. Now the sailors were as worried as the passengers. But as always, the pilgrims took their concerns and fears to God, asking him to deliver them and provide a way of escape. Oh Lord, deliver us. Provide a way of escape. And he did. And protect our little ones. Their spiritual leader, William Brewster, remembered the large iron jack screw the pilgrims had brought for lifting heavy beams when they would begin their building construction. Similar to the screw on his printing press, the jack screw was located in the cargo hold and carried to the tween deck, where the sailors used it to crank up the beam to its original position. The pilgrims gave God the praise. One man, a servant of John Carver, named John Howland, became frantic after being cooped up so long during the long storm. Though the worst of the storm was over, the main deck was still no place for passengers who were not used to rough seas. He disobeyed both the captain's and his master's orders and went up on deck for some fresh air. The waves were still huge and sprayed frigid water over the sides. Suddenly, when the ship heeled over without warning, John fell overboard. As the young man slammed into the surface of the icy water and went under, he instinctively reached up with his arms, grasping for anything to hold on to. A rope was trailing over the side of the ship, and by God's amazing grace, it was there when John reached out. A person can live in the North Atlantic in November for only about four minutes. No one knows exactly how long John was in that cold, salty water before the sailors were able to haul him on deck. His skin was blue, and he'd nearly drowned, but he did survive. There's no record that he ever disobeyed an order again. Another young man, a servant by the name of William Button, became an example to all the other passengers on the importance of obeying the captain. It appears that William refused to follow the captain's and the ship's doctor's orders to drink a spoonful of lemon juice daily. He became sick and died the only passenger to die on the voyage. His body was quickly buried at sea. The pilgrims, especially the children, took notice. In the midst of tragic events and hardships on the long voyage, 
the pilgrims also knew times of rejoicing. A moment of joy came when one of the mothers gave birth in the smelly, crowded cabin to a baby boy. His proud father appropriately named the lad Oceanus. His name is Oceanus. But after ten weeks at sea, many passengers were falling ill and complaining of fever, chills and swollen limbs. The situation was grave and there was still no sign of land. The weather, however, had finally improved so that passengers could go on deck for exercise and fresh air. Captain Miles Standish, in charge of security and military readiness for the colony, took this opportunity to drill the men on the basics of weaponry and tactics. On November the 9th, several children squealed with delight when they saw a seagull dive above the ship. Not long afterward, a sailor cried, Land ho! After 65 days at sea from Plymouth, a total of 97 days from the first launch at Southampton, the pilgrims caught a glimpse of their destination, the new land where God would be worshipped freely and in time where freedom would flourish. Shouting for joy and falling to their knees to pray, they celebrated by reading Psalm 100. Shout joyfully to the Lord, all the earth. Serve the Lord with gladness. Come before him with joyful singing. Know that the Lord himself is God. It is he who has made us and not we ourselves. We are his people and the sheep of his pasture. Enter his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise. Give thanks to him, bless his name, for the Lord is good. His loving-kindness is everlasting and His faithfulness to all generations. With land clearly in sight, brownish bluffs and treetops on the horizon, the Mayflower sailed slowly up the coastline, staying out to sea far enough to avoid the treacherous shoals and rocks nearer shore. The passengers eagerly eyed what they could see of what is now the northern tip of Cape Cod. Because of the difficult seas they had encountered, the pilgrims had made their landfall about 60 miles north of their intended destination at the mouth of the Hudson River. The leaders on board wondered what to do. Should they sail back to the south, where their charter with the Virginia Company would be in effect? Or should they find a suitable harbour and settle here? Had God in his providence led them to this spot. After much debate and prayer, they decided to stay and build their settlement in New England. When all of the passengers heard of this decision, confusion and some dissension broke out. The bonded servants on board argued that this plan changed the terms of their work agreement. Fear rose that these men would declare their independence and leave the pilgrims with a depleted labour supply. Something needed to be done to bring about unity. For an entire day, November the 10th, 1620, a discussion went on in the main cabin of the Mayflower. Mr. Bradford, sir, this land we have come upon, ship's master Jones saith not to be in the Virginias at all. True enough, Mr. Trevor. We knoweth not with certainty what land God hath set us upon, though we believe it to be a good land, called Plymouth by the Cape of Cod. Best for us if it is a fat land, 
for our stores are well nigh eaten through already. Then if our stores be depleted, we must do the work are better served in the Virginias. We know but little of this land, nor the people thereof, nor whether our labors will be blessed here. Methinks you'll do the labor for which you have been indentured, as you have so signed in troth. We'll do no labor outside the king's protection, which we have not here in Plymouth. Good men, good men, peace be among us all. Our quarrels must not divide us. Master Bradford, we have no quarrel with you. But that contract which united us is of no good effect without the king's warrant. Thou hast given thy pledge for one year's service. Not outside the Virginians. Good men, thee must see that these issues which divide us will undo us. The land of the Hudson River hath eluded our grasp by the providence of God, is it not? The Lord has driven us by his power to this land of Plymouth. Therefore, being here, we must remain here at present, for the winter is upon us. And whether we be of the saints or the strangers, we must make a new agreement. Under whose authority? Under the authority we carry as Christian Englishmen, and with a clear conscience As the ship worked God its way around the tip of the Cape, searching for a coastal inlet to enter and drop anchor, the debate continued. Finally, several of the leaders drafted an agreement. The Mayflower Compact, which was to become one of the more important documents in American history. The major points of the agreement were explained to the passengers, and all adult males were asked to sign the compact before the ship dropped anchor. It is settled then? Yes. We covenant together, one and all? Therefore, in the name of God, we whose names are underwritten... According to the book, The Light and the Glory, by Peter Marshall and David Manuel, it marked the first time in recorded history that free and equal men had voluntarily covenanted together to create their own new civil government. The key clauses contain these words. Having undertaken for the glory of God and advancement of the Christian faith and honor of our king and country, a voyage to plant the first colony in the northern parts of Virginia. We do, by these presents, solemnly and mutually in the presence of God and of one another, covenant and combine ourselves together into a civil body politic for our better ordering and preservation and furtherance of the ends aforesaid. With the compact signed, a hedge against revolt was in place. Next, the last bit of business was conducted. The election of John Carver as governor of the colony for a one-year term. We've been listening to the first part of a book written by Barbara Rainey. Its title is Thanksgiving, A Time to Remember. It's one way we hope you're able to establish some new traditions in your home at Thanksgiving time. Consider it a gift from Ever Thine Home to you. And be sure to head to our website, everthinehome.com, and subscribe to Barbara's blog. That way, you'll be notified in your inbox anytime she posts something new and when new Barbara Rainey podcast episodes are available. Also, while you're there, would you consider making a donation to help support the ministry of Ever Thine Home? We depend on the giving of friends like you. You can give by clicking the tab that says donate at everthinehome.com. Hey, thanks for listening today. I'm Samantha Laux. I hope you'll be sure to go listen to part two of Barbara's book, Thanksgiving, A Time to Remember. That episode is available now. 
See you on the next episode of the Barbara Rainey Podcast from Ever Thine Home.